0: Turn with me this morning to Psalm 59. This is our uh, Psalm of the Month and our monthly look at that Psalm of the Month. I'll read this whole Psalm. Let's listen carefully to uh, the holy, perfect word of God together. Notice again the setting is when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. David, uh, we read earlier. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity, and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord, for no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Arouse your help, yourself to help me and see. You, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. They return at evening, they howl like a dog and go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth, swords are on their lips, for they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations. Because of his strength, I will watch for you. For God is my stronghold. My God and his loving kindness will meet with me. God will let me look triumphantly on my foes. Do not slay them or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. On account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be caught in their pride. And on account of the curses and lies which they utter, Destroy them in wrath, destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. They return at evening, they howl like a dog and go around the city, they wander about for food and growl if they are not satisfied. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength, yes I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning, for you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress, O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. And our reading there. How do we pray about those who do evil or oppose the church or or hate what is good? Uh, We're going to consider this psalm and thinking about parts of the answer to that question. Um, Again, think about David's Setting, what gave rise to this psalm, as it says in the heading here, David was trapped uh, very near uh, what would have been a brutal death at the hands of Saul's men, it seems. Uh, they were not only enemies of David, but because of who David was, these are enemies of God, enemies of God's anointed king. Um, David gives various descriptions of his situation and, and his attackers. In Psalm 59 here, they're they're men of bloodshed, verse 2. Verse 3, they set an ambush for my life. Uh, Fierce men launch an attack against me. Uh, It's clearly not just a a complaint David is making against people he doesn't like. Uh, These are people who are trying to kill him, to destroy his life and and God's plan along with that. He describes them as as ravenous animals, verse 6. And then at the end, verse 14, 15. Uh, scavengers who come out at night for food, uh, circling like vultures or like wild dogs. Uh, verse 7, he describes what they say. They belch forth with their mouth; Swords are on their lips. And they say, who hears? That, that is, they're, they're speaking carelessly and destructively uh, and arrogantly. Who hears? Blasphemously even. Um, nobody cares what we do. They think they can get away with it. At verse 9, David is, is in a place of weakness. They are strong. He's weak. He's helpless. God must be his stronghold if he's going to survive. And so there's, this psalm includes simple requests for help. This is how the psalm begins. Uh, Deliver me from my enemies, verse 2. Deliver me from those who do iniquity. But also, and this is what I want us to particularly wrestle with this morning, There are statements like verse 5, Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. Or verse 11, scatter them by your power and bring them down. Uh, Or maybe most strikingly, verse 13, uh, Destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more. If you're familiar with the Psalms, um, you know this is not the only place where we read this kind of strong Language, um, these strong prayers, we, we call these um, in, in theology imprecations. That is, they are prayed curses or, or prayed judgments, Ask, asking God for judgment against others. And this morning, I, I want to largely um, look at that aspect of this psalm and end of the psalms uh, somewhat topically. We'll be looking at Psalm 59 as a whole, some as well, but, but also somewhat topically considering that aspect of the psalms. Um, because a difficult thing to, to wrestle with. Um, it's not a dominant theme in the Psalms, but it's a significant theme in the Psalms. Um, uh, there, there are many Psalms that include language uh, like that. And sometimes in very surprising places. Places maybe we, we forget it's there, or we're especially uncomfortable it's there. So Psalm 104, if I were to ask you, what is Psalm 104 about? And, and if you're familiar with it, you'd say, well, it's all about God's creation. It's about... We sing about animal. You know, it's a favorite psalm we teach to kids. It's about the rock badgers and the birds and the trees. And God provides for his creation. And that's what Psalm 104 is all about. But Maybe we forget the very last verse. Then says, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's interestingly how Psalm 104 ends. Or Psalm 139. If I said, what is Psalm 139 about? If, if you know Psalm 139, so it's, it's all about God's intimate and, and tender loving knowledge of us right where can i flee from your presence when i when i lie down when i rise up you know god knows my inmost thoughts he knows us and yet he loves us that's what psalm 139 is all about a very sweet psalm uh, except the very middle verse maybe we forget and we wouldn't put on greeting cards like the rest of the psalm oh that you would slay the wicked O oh god that's the middle verse of psalm 139 it's easy to understand and appropriate and sing much of what's in the Psalter. Uh, looking at our psalm again, Psalm 59, it's maybe easy to sing and appropriate the last verse. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. But how many of us are maybe a little uncomfortable singing about destroying enemies? Uh, uncertain how to sing, or how to use, or how to understand those parts of the Psalter, or maybe whether we even should? We mumble through and, or sort of mentally skip over those parts when, when they come up uh, in the psalms. Uh, do these parts of the Psalter relate to us, or how do they relate to us? Uh, how do they fit, or do they fit with, with abundant New Testament commands to love your enemies and pray for your enemies, to turn the other cheek, and, and so on? There have been a number of attempts through history to um, explain sort of explain away these parts of the psalms. Uh, some have suggested, well, these, these parts, this is David speaking in sin. This is when David is sinfully uh, angry or vengeful. Uh, and so we, we, don't, we don't think about, you know, appropriating or, or using those, those prayers. Um, there's really no evidence that that is true. Um, the church in Israel sang all of these psalms in worship. They were, they were given by God's inspiration to be used uh, in worship. Others have suggested, well, this is the this would be more the uh, liberal critical approach. This is the immature Old Testament speaking in, in contrast to the New Testament. Um, the New Testament brings us to ethical maturity. We wouldn't you know say things like this from the Old Testament. Um, uh, that brings up massive problems with you know suggesting there are competing ethical standards between the two uh, testaments. Um, for holiness um, opens up other questions about the reliability of the Old Testament, and so on. And, and we would reject that that approach to Scripture. These Psalms are David speaking um, the inspired Word of God, and it was a, a righteous example in some way given to God's people uh, for their worship. Uh, before we we come back to these these uh, again these questions I've, I've posed, if, if and how and why. Uh, In the New Testament, we can sing these parts of the Psalter. Just a a couple of practical reasons why at least, I think, we're easily, in our setting, we're easily uncomfortable with these parts of the Psalter. One would simply be, by God's grace, the ease and affluence of of Western modern civilization. Um, Think again of of David's setting here, the, the terror of his situation, people waiting outside to murder him. Um, to destroy God's plan for his church. Something maybe none of us have ever had even a small taste of something like that in life, ever. Um, maybe a you know a tiny little taste of terror through watching a horror movie or something like that, but not, not actual uh, threat to our lives. Uh, you think of just the instability of the kingship of Israel, of the world in that day, surrounded by nations who... Um, we're constantly at war and wanting to destroy and enslave and plunder Israel. Um, and, and thinking more broadly about history, the Psalms are not written just for nations where Christianity is largely accepted and, and tolerated in some way and, and is, is to a large degree at peace. We don't, ex- we don't expect war every day. Um, we have... Relatively speaking, in our nation, an incredible rule of law and freedom for God's people. It's not to say we don't face opposition, but we gather here every week without any thought of uh, opposition. Um, The Psalms are given to God's people across all ages and all places throughout all of history, um, which uh, generally has been to God's people facing persecution, uh, facing struggle. Uh, many facing brutal conditions and threats that, that we can't comprehend. We, we, again, by God's grace, don't face. We, we can gather for worship every week and sing happy songs and, and not have a thought of the terror of enemies. But that actually has not been the normal experience of Christians uh, throughout history. And, and still in many parts of the world. For Christians in, in Rome in the first century. Or or for the French Huguenots or the Lollards or the Covenanters, or Christians around the world still, again, where, where family members or pastors were being taken and imprisoned and burned, or their heads cut off, or families ripped apart. This has been a normal experience for the church throughout history, well back through the Old Testament as well. And, and for them, the Psalms have been a lifeline, have been, have been an obvious and a desperately needed uh, prayer for the people of God. Uh, they desperately, gratefully, clung to songs that plead with God for justice, that plead with God to act and and intervene and crush wicked oppressors. Um, and so that's just a again, we ought to be grateful for for the peace and security, the measure of it that God has given to us. But we should be aware of that perspective and and recognize maybe our our perspective is is limited. We're in in a an extraordinary position given the history of of the Christian church and what the Bible pictures the church being until Christ returns to rescue it. Um, Maybe our sense of the real spiritual battle, even that we face is, is dulled a bit uh, by our our setting. There still is an enemy trying to destroy the church. Uh, Secondly, a second reason maybe we're sort of naturally uncomfortable at least uh, with with these parts of the Psalter is we don't like what the imprecations in the Psalter say about evil and sin. Maybe implicitly about our sin. Certainly my sin can't be bad, that bad, right, uh, to deserve that kind of language or judgment. Uh, we, we don't want to take sin that seriously or admit that it's that bad or that that's what it deserves. Um, the, these are Sometimes shocking, hard words to read or to sing, especially in our setting. Um, But rightly so, if we have the perspective, biblical perspective, on on sin, I think. Sin is a shocking, horrific offense to a holy God. So let's dig in again to that question. Secondly, on your outline, are these songs appropriate for the New Testament church? And and there are different answers, different opinions on that question in the history of the church. Um, Generally... Within Reformed churches, the answer would, would be yes, but there is there's diversity even in Reformed churches on that. But the short answer I'm giving you is, is yes, they, they are appropriate, but with important qualifications. We need to be careful to understand why and how. So to, to, to think about that question, uh, we need to be aware, as we think of the Old Testament, the setting that the believers were in there, and, and the New Testament, the light of Christ having come and Christ reigning and, and so on, Be aware of both discontinuity and continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want to think about both of those real real briefly. Uh, First of all, discontinuity. What's what's different between our setting and David's setting? Um, God promised, we'll go all the way back to Abraham. God promised Abraham a land and blessing to his descendants. But he was going to give 400 people, 400 years, for the people in that land uh, to repent to serve him to become part of his people or or otherwise and when when they only deepened in their wickedness he eventually sent the israelites to the promised land to the land of canaan as as a judgment on them and that was part of the israelites setting that was part of david's setting you and i are not commissioned to destroy the canaanites from the land uh, or or anyone right Or, or receive a promised land there is no promised land uh, not here, not in the Middle East, not anywhere anymore. Um, we don't sing these songs personally against other nations or other people uh, as if we're called by God to displace them, uh, as if they were wrongly living on our land or, or a threat to our very existence. Um, and so it's a very different setting. It's a different time in God's uh, story of of redemption God's plan of redemption it's not a different plan of redemption it's not a different salvation a different God in any way Uh, but it's a different time in God's story of redemption God is now calling people to himself from all nations he's he's establishing his church around the world not not just in one place and so we don't take these psalms on our lips and sing them as if we're using them in exactly the same way and in every bit of the same way that that David was when they were originally used. But think secondly about continuity. Um, what's what's uh, the same between the... Te- we, we understand the Bible to be one story of salvation. Uh, one people of God. One God. Um, sometimes the differences between the Old Testament and New Testament are exaggerated, misunderstood. Um, maybe we think of the New Testament particularly being more about about love and grace and so on. The Old Testament is full of expressions of God's love and grace and patience and mercy and invitations to be part of that. Anyone in the world, in the Old Testament as well, could come and be part of God's people, uh, and, and many did. And then in the New Testament, that becomes clearer and more, or more frequent and more robust calls in light of Jesus' finished work. And his rule and, and the gospel going to the ends of the world extraordinarily calls to, to love and forbearance and suffer with and for Christ and to love your enemies and, and so on. And there's, there's no longer a, a, a promised land and a judgment on Canaan and so on. But that doesn't mean the New Testament, in contrast, is just fluffy love and acceptance over against the, New Te- the, the Old Testament. Uh, there's also plenty of warning of judgment, The somber uh, judgment in the, Old, in, in the New Testament as well. Jesus, uh, Matthew 23, Matthew 23 is where Jesus pronounces um, these great woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. Very hard words. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, uh, Peter says to Simon, uh, you remember this story, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Uh, Peter curses Simon. In Galatians 1, Paul says, uh, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, and Paul knows that many people will, he's talking about actual people, let them be accursed. Let them be anathema. Paul pronounces a curse against anyone who will teach against the gospel of Christ. Revelation 6 sounds very much like many of the Psalms. The, they, they cried out, that the martyrs in heaven, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And and we could give more examples still. The the church, and more importantly, God himself still has enemies. The New Testament says we were once enemies. And so we still find curses against those who will not repent, whose, whose aim is to hinder God's gracious, redeeming work in the world. And that's because, and this is, This is really the second point I want to make here, and the key reason why these psalms are in some way still appropriate for us to sing, because salvation comes through judgment. Uh, Justice and peace and righteousness can only come, they can only exist in this fallen world when evil is destroyed. And to be a just judge, God has to punish evil. To bring peace, he he has to remove evil and violence and, and stop it. And, and God does that in, in one of two ways. As he pleases for his purpose and glory, he either brings judgment on those who do evil, he, he stops them in their tracks, ends them, or that judgment comes on Christ for those who, who seek Christ to uh, confess their sins and put their faith in Christ and their evil is ended uh, in that way. And either way, every sin, every sinner is dealt with sins are punished and removed forever and, and we can't we can't know or understand why God does it one way or the other way or, and, and what God's plan is, but salvation comes through judgment in this rebellious world and, and in his wisdom for his glory, he uses both means uh, here's an example from the book of Acts of how God uses both means to bring peace and goodness and salvation through judgment Uh, two characters Saul and Herod right Saul later become Paul Uh, Saul and Herod both wicked men both persecuting the church killing imprisoning Christians Um, Herod execute had had James executed put Peter in prison in the book of Acts well how did how did God put an end to Saul's evil well he confronted him it stopped him in his tracks, offered him the mercy of the gospel, gave him repentance. And, and Saul put his faith in Jesus and became Paul. How did God put an end to Herod's murderous evil? In Acts 12, we read about Peter getting put in prison. And it says that the church earnestly prayed for him. And the prayers were answered. Peter was miraculously freed from heaven. And then it says of Herod immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he would not give God the glory. Uh, there's an example of, for whatever God's hidden and holy reasons, using both means in, in answering the, the prayers of the church uh, in opposing evil. Uh, Gerhardus Voss is an important Reformed theologian. Um, uh, gives this uh, Stark, somewhat hard hitting uh, analysis of this fact that salvation comes through judgment. He says, God's kingdom cannot come without Satan's kingdom being destroyed. God's will cannot be done in earth without the destruction of evil. Evil cannot be destroyed without the destruction of men who are permanently identified with it. Instead of being influenced by the sickly sentimentalism of the present day, Christians should realize that the glory of God demands the destruction of evil. Instead of being insistent on the assumed but really non-existent rights of men, we should focus our attention on the rights of God. And then he turns to to consider the Psalms. Instead of being ashamed of the imprecatory Psalms and attempting to apologize for them or explain them away, Christian people should glory in them and not hesitate to use them with care in the worship of God. Look at verse 11 in our, back to our psalm again. End of verse 11, scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord our shield. On account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride, and on account of curses and lies which they utter. It's simply a prayer for David that those trying to kill him would fail, that God would stop them. And look back at verse five, we're going to kind of jump around a, a lot here today. back in verse five, the end, do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity if they don't stop don't be don't be gracious to them and allow them to succeed. God, cause their plans to fall to fail, thwart them. Uh, don't let people get away with wrong. It's a prayer God be just. Maybe we'd be, have less discomfort with. These imprecations in the Psalter, we remember that this is what we expect of our own rulers, right? We've just had an election this, this week. On what basis would any of us vote for a particular candidate uh, over another even? Uh, certainly on, on the expectation that an elected official or a police chief or a judge would uphold the law, right? Would Would hand out precisely... The punishments and fines and and jail times and so on that are that are deserved, that are required by the law. Now, if we expect that perfectly of our human rulers, how much more do we expect that and ask that of of a holy God? And and we'll come later to discuss the fact we, we don't as Christians we don't pretend to be outside of evil or above it ourselves. But if it's right for God to oppose and stop and punish evil people like we expect of our judges and our rulers, it cannot be wrong that we would humbly pray that God would put an end to evil. And and I would suggest just practically that that we all know and act on that principle implicitly already in our prayers. Uh, We all pray implicitly this way, even if we don't explicitly, Uh, to use a, a Lower level, simpler illustration first, if you pray for healing for someone with an infection. Is that not implicitly to pray that the bacteria would be destroyed, would die, right? That's what has to happen if the person is going to be healed. Uh, More seriously, when we pray for the success and safety of our military, which probably many of us, most of us have done, are we not praying for the enemy to be pushed back? Implicitly that they would be killed, destroyed, that their plans would fall apart and fail, that the war would end, that enemies would would be thwarted and scattered, as the Psalm says here. Don't we wish for ISIS and Al Qaeda and so on to fall apart? For for tomahawk missiles to strike their targets, that innocent people would live in peace. Isn't that implicit in our in our prayers already? Um, even if we don't spell it out quite as positively as David does. When you pray for the end of abortion, as we do, is it not implicit in our prayers that the abortion industry would come to ruins, to put it more positively, for, for God to bring judgment against doctors and investors and companies rather than destruction to millions of babies? Is it an implicit that we're praying that organizations and business models would fall apart, their funding would dry up, that babies would be saved, that mothers would be saved, if they will not repent and, and serve King Jesus? And again, God, God can do these things by whichever means. He does do these things by whichever means he chooses. We pray for the end of abortion either way. We leave the means to God. This is another example um, from from our world out, outside of the scriptures, um, I was thinking recently about the the song "God Save the King," which is, by the way, now "God Save the King," not the Queen. Um, it, it flipped. Um, I guess it can do that. the The first verse is is a very happy, celebratory prayer for the king or the queen. It's the familiar verse, the one the one that. You've heard probably uh, many times before, it goes like this. God save our gracious king, long live our noble king, God save the king. Send him victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us, God save the king. Maybe you haven't heard the second verse. The second verse is an all-out imprecation against the enemies of the king of England. Um, But it's simply the, the, the implications of the first verse. And even more interestingly this morning... Um, almost half of the second verse of God Save the King is from Psalm 59. It's quoted from Psalm 59, um, verse 4 and verse 11. It begins, O Lord, our God, arise. Scatter his enemies and make them fall. As verse 11. Confound their politics. Frustrate their knavish tricks. On thee our hopes we fix. God save us all. Now, it might seem like the first and second verses are you know, totally different from each other, but the second verse is simply the implications of the first verse. God saved the king. Well, that means you've got to thwart the knavish tricks of, of the enemy. Right? Make them fall, scatter them. And consider it's it's God's promise to protect his people, to be their God, to build his church. The imprecations are part of pleading God's covenant faithfulness back to him. Lord, be who you are to us. We're accustomed to addressing different people in society based on their relationship to us. So you address your doctor, you say, you know, fix, make me well, fix my fix my problem, fix my illness. You're addressing your doctor on the basis of your relationship to that person. They're, they're a contract with you in a sense. You call the police, you ask for protection, you ask for an arrest, you're addressing them on the basis of their relationship to you. The Psalms pray Lord, be who you are to us. Work out your faithfulness in this way. I'll look at Psalm or, or verse 4 here. Arouse yourself to help me and see. Uh, you are God. You, O you, oh Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel. This is who you are. Be the faithful God of Israel and save and similarly today as as we think about singing the, these these parts of the Psalter day we we sing them in light of not David but but our king king Jesus being on the throne we we don't sing and pray for particular people to be destroyed in nations around us that's not the setting that we're in under David but we are under king Jesus we pray for the success of the kingdom of Christ over the kingdom of Satan and and in one sense that's exactly simply what, what David was praying for, for the success of the kingdom of God, just in a different setting, a different time in the history of, of, of redemption. Um, again, because of how, uh, in one sense, relatively easy it is to be a Christian where we are. I don't mean to say it's easy in every way, but the relative peace that we have as the church. We, we don't maybe take seriously enough how dangerous the enemies of the church are. Around us, maybe in different ways, more subtle ways. Um, The enemy of the church is still active. So, again, salvation comes through judgment. So, we sing these psalms, even if not lightly or or often rightly, in the hope and longing of seeing Christ's kingdom advance uh, and be victorious. Whether God would do that through destruction, through um, judgment uh, of the cross, and, and showing mercy and changing hearts. Well, I want us finally, we, we've left off a, a very significant piece of understanding these psalms. And, and so that's, uh, thirdly, on your outline, I want us to see the attitude of the psalmist and ours, what ours must be if, if we were to sing these, these prayers thoughtfully. Uh, first is the concern for uh, not self, but for God's honor. A consistent concern in these, in these prayers for God's honor. Um. David's concern is not in the Psalms just to be rescued or to return to a place of comfort and ease, but it's that God would be glorified, that his name would be great and would be praised. That's consistently the hope we see. I'm going to show you that in a couple other Psalms. We'll come back to Psalm 59. Look just right next to ours in Psalm 58. Psalm 58 also has some particularly harsh, colorful language for God's enemies. Verse 6 God shatter their teeth in their mouth. Uh, you read on, break out the fangs of the young lions. He's he's picturing enemies of the church as lions. You know, at least Lord take out their teeth. Um, uh, verse uh, eight: Let them be as snail as a snail which melts away as it goes along, and then even more uh, harshly, like the miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Then I want you to look at the purpose. What is the purpose for which David is, is praying these things in Psalm 58, verse 11? So that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. It's so that people would know that there is a God, a just and good God. It's not as frequent in the New, as in the New Testament, but the Psalms in a number of places speak of the nation's being drawn to God, being drawn to the one true God and, and worshiping Him and acknowledging Him. But but the thing the Psalmists wrestle with is how will they know that there's a just and holy God if God just lets people get away with whatever heinous wickedness they, they want to do and doesn't protect His people. Psalm eighty three is another example that, that toward the end of Psalm eighty three it says, fill their faces with shame. Again a a, a harsh prayer, but, but what is the reason? The rest of that sentence, fill their faces with shame so that they may seek your name, O Lord. That, that's consistently the hope. Of, it's not just a, a vengeful get rid of them and make me more comfortable. Lord, it's, it's be just so that people will know you. Let them be put to shame. This Psalm 83 going on. Let them be put to shame and dismayed. Let them perish in disgrace. Why? so that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. It's actually an evangelistic prayer. Sometimes the Psalms, in the Psalms, because of this harsh language, praying for judgment, and so on, we, I think we miss that humble hope for the glory of God, the conversion of others, that that's the ultimate hope. Now it may be that, that in the immediate situation, David is saying, "Lord, Go get rid of and destroy these guys on the porch, however you need to do it. But do it so that others will turn to you. And this kind of evil will, will end. The hope is consistently that they would show, that, that, that people would see God's justice and know him. So back to Psalm 59. The the clarity of this kind of builds throughout the Psalms. There, there's a There's a hint even in the beginning as we read the heading again. Uh, recognizing this is this has to do with David versus Saul, Saul trying to kill David. Um, now, now, what can we what can we assume about David's attitude in in praying these prayers and praying for God's justice? Think about what you know in, in Saul pursuing David. There were two instances, two times when David had an opportunity to put an end to this, right, with with impunity and and you know from probably anybody's perspective, justly. Defend his life and kill Saul and, and escape and, and carry on as God's anointed king. And David refused to. Right? He wouldn't take that opportunity. He, he, he said that's, that's God's prerogative to kill Saul. Uh, and so we understand from David's own story, he's not acting in, in, in and praying in, in personal vengeance. He is asking for God's definitive justice and judgment. But he's not asking a personal vengeance. Verse 5, he he extends this. It's not just about Saul's men on the porch waiting to kill him. Uh, It it extends to all the nations. God, let your justice and glory be seen everywhere. Verse 11 is a really interesting um, comment where David says, Do not slay them or my people will forget. I think what David is saying there is, God, don't do it too quickly or harshly. Nobody will know about it. And this this purpose that David prays for in the Psalms over and over again, people won't see and believe. Uh, And then the clearest comes in verse 13, which is also paired with the strongest language, destroy them in wrath, but then what is the reason? So that men may know that God rules in Jacob and to the ends of the earth. The NIV is a little bit clearer. It says, then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. That God rules, not Saul, not David. The result would be not David's glory, but God's glory and people's knowledge of God's glory. That's why he asks for this justice. Secondly, we need to understand the humility and forgiveness and trust that's in the attitude of uh, of these prayers. Judgment is never our prerogative, even if we may hope for it, long for it, pray for it. It's ultimately God's. Um, and the psalmist maintained an attitude of trusting God's judgment, an attitude of humility. And that might seem sort of contradictory or paradoxical, right? praying for judgment on the one hand and humbly trusting God for it and, and praying for conversion uh, on the other hand. But But this is This is how the scriptures teach us to pray. That's God's prerogative. Um, Consider some examples from the New Testament that that hold both of these things together. Jesus is an example himself. In Matthew 23, again, all these curses against the Pharisees. This is Jesus pronouncing reality to the Pharisees, but then at the end of that passage, when Jesus' own heart is revealed, what do we read? It's, It's... Jesus lament, compassionate lament, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent it. This is why he's warning of judgment. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. That's Jesus' personal attitude and offer of grace to anyone. Even as he warns of of judgment. Uh, Stephen, in the book of Acts, is another great example of this. Stephen was arrested and stoned for what? For preaching judgment, right? They didn't like what they, what they heard. He's saying God's judgment is against you. He's, he's proclaiming reality to them, but then as he's being stoned, we read, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That was his his personal attitude was he was preaching so that they would come to know the God that he came to know. And his his prayer reflects the the prayer of Jesus on the cross. This this example of humble trust is not absent from Psalm 59 and other Psalms as well. In verse 9, David confesses he does not have the strength. It it must be God's action. Uh, Verse 10, uh, he mentions God's Loving kindness in the NAS, his chesed, that's God's covenant mercy uh, and love to David. Why does, God need, why does David need God's chesed? Because David's a sinner. He's implicitly confessing his own sin. He's deserving of judgment, but God has shown him his loving kindness. And, and he mentions God's loving kindness again in verse 16, verse 17. As the psalm ends, that's how it ends. Um, Paul in Titus 3 reminds us that even as we pray for the advance of Christ's kingdom and and the downfall of evil, uh, it reminds us what humility we have to have uh, in praying that. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. That's the description of us, Paul says. And it was only, he says, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior that appeared to save us. So we don't, we don't pray against evil. We don't pray for the safety of our military and what that implicitly means. We don't pray for the end of abortion without um, understanding that we, that we are part of evil, right? That we are capable of anything aside from God's grace. We don't pray as if we were above that in any way. Um, We understand that God has conquered uh, evil in us only by uh, the gift of of Christ and his sacrifice. So we sing Psalm 59 and others as a prayer that the kingdom of Christ would come, whether by judgment or mercy or both, and in the hope that that God's will would be done on earth as is in heaven. So let's pray together, and then we'll sing uh, part of this psalm together. Father in heaven, we thank you for... Uh, your Word in Psalm 59 this morning, and uh, we pray that our uh, reflections on it, on some of the more more difficult parts, would be faithful. Um, that Holy Spirit, that you would guide us in understanding better how we ought to pray in this in this fallen world. Um, we do pray, Lord, that you would uh, be faithful to your promises, uh, that you would be just. That people would see your justice, uh, even your judgment, and, and turn to you. Uh, we share that hope with, with David and with, with the Lord Jesus in his prayers. Uh, we pray all this in his name. Amen.